Entertainment's podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Welcome to everyone and thank you for joining Bottomline's second virtual media roundtable to discuss our sixth annual business payments barometer. My name is Gareth Priest, Chief Platform Officer at Bottomline, and I'll be moderating today's discussion. Joining me is um, an distinguished panel of impressive speakers from across the industry. We have uh, Gavin McLean, Managing Director of Payments Products at Lloyds Bank, Naresh Agawal, Associate Director of Policy and Technical at the Association of Corporate Treasurers, and Dan Bellis, Senior Policy Manager at Federation of Small Businesses. Our speakers will share their views around the key themes and findings from this year's payments barometer and their thoughts on what the future of holds for UK payments. Kicking off, I want to a brief overview of bottom line business payments barometer in partnership with Mori. Having conducted an online survey among 800 financial decision makers from small, medium, large and enterprise businesses across England, Scotland and Wales, the barometer focuses on the major payment and frankly business challenges that businesses faced last year in particular surrounding international commerce, fraud, the adoption of new payment types and technology, and regulatory awareness. This year's barometer plays out against the backdrop of the confluence of two major economic disruptions, referral to COVID-19 and Brexit. With every business initially moving into survival mode, we do see a picture forming of the very differing impacts and priorities between smaller businesses and larger organisations. All companies are almost completely focused on keeping cash in and less aware of upcoming regulations. Larger organisations are more impacted with fraud and experience greater losses than their smaller counterparts over the last year. Whilst the pandemic, pandemic has affected businesses across the board, this year's report does shed light on several emerging themes and we'll explore with our panel why adaptation to those changes is the only way businesses of all sizes to move forward successfully. As a reminder, this information is under embargo until Wednesday 9th of June at 9am British Summer Time. We will be sharing a copy of the full report and an infographic after the webinar. And your lines will be muted throughout the presentation. But we encourage you to submit any questions you have via the Q&A function. We will aim to address those at the end of the presentation. Should we not get to your question, then please feel free to follow up with Prozit directly. Any questions that are specific to how the survey was conducted or details around the numbers, we will follow up with you um, after the presentation with input from Ipsos Mori. And with that, I say good morning to the panel. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. I'd like to kick off perhaps by asking you each to give a brief introduction and um, perhaps to highlight uh, a single finding or a stat that you found to be most insightful from within this year's report. Um, and perhaps, Dan, if I can start with yourself on that. Certainly. Um, so I'm Dan Bellis, the Senior Policy Manager for the Federation of Small Businesses. Um, we are one of the largest uh, business membership bodies in the UK, representing the small business uh, owners and the self-employed. Um, so it's everything from the, the, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the plumber, right the way through to your um, SME with up to around 250 employees. Um, so there's a wide range of businesses within that sort of cohort. One of the biggest stats from the report that stood out for me was that 83% of businesses are still paying their supplies late. It's been a core piece of FSB's work for the last couple of years. We've been working with the Small Business Commissioner and the government to try and really crack down on late payments. Um, and it's, it just highlights the fact that we still have quite a way to go in, in terms of resolving this. And 83%, quite frankly, isn't good enough. 
Um, so we'll keep going, keep hammering the base and keep working on it. Thank you and welcome, Dan. Um, Naresh, perhaps I can come to you next. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, so I represent the Association of Corporate Treasurers and I spend a lot of my time talking to treasurers about the problems, the challenges and their future hopes around the payment ecosystem. I also spend time with the Bank of England talking about their replacement programmes in Pay UK. So we try and engage both the users and the policymakers around changes in their payment landscape. And for me, one of the things that I've been following is around real-time payments. And I was interested to see that 61% of enterprise businesses are adopting real-time payments, and only about a third of smaller businesses are actually doing that. And I think there's so much benefit and opportunity around these faster payments and real-time payments that if we can unlock that, it's a huge amount of opportunity for businesses. Okay, thank you, Nourish, and uh, welcome to you. And uh, finally to you, Gavin. Hi, Gareth. Uh, morning, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Um, Gavin McLean, I run the payments product team in commercial banking at Lloyd's. So that involves creating and operating payment products that allow our business customers to make and receive payments. And that's businesses of, of all sizes. Um, so in my role, the thing that really stuck out to me from this year's barometer survey is that one in two businesses have accepted a new payment type in 2020. Um, it's often been said that the lockdown has accelerated some existing trends and triggered some new ones, uh, like remote working or shopping online. And with half of businesses having adopted a new payment type in the last year, um, it seems to me that payments hasn't escaped this particular revolution either. Well, thanks for that insight, Gavin. It actually probably leads us neatly on to our first topic to discuss, which, as I said at the outset, this barometer has played out against this backdrop of COVID and of, and of Brexit. And as you mentioned, there's been perhaps an acceleration of some secular trends and some new trends that have been forced upon us. So, um, so as uh, experts in the industry, what are those trends? What have you seen? What's accelerated? What impact has that had on businesses? And, and perhaps how many of those trends are here to stay? So perhaps, Gavin, as you, you, you brought us into this, you might like to take that first. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Gareth. So trends that we've seen accelerate are declines in the use of cash and checks, perhaps understandably with uh, lockdowns and social distancing, um, those have definitely declined. We've seen faster increases in the use of debit cards, uh, particularly contactless transactions helped, of course, by the increase last year to the contactless limit. We've seen more adoption of digital payments and e-commerce transactions. And we've also seen some unexpected impacts to the costs of making payments to and from Europe. So now that the UK is outside the EU, our clients making payments may be treated like a citizen or a business in any other country outside the EU, potentially leading to higher charges on those cross-border card payments, wires, and so on. The, the impact has been that, of course, businesses, as they often have to do, have had to adapt. So, you know, adjusting physical shops, stores, restaurants and offices, adjusting in many cases to colleagues working from home or, or not being able to work at all, and also having to adapt their payment practices. 
whether that be accepting card payments for the first line, first time or selling online for the first time, or even hybrid models to support things like click and collect or pay at table using a QR code in the hospitality industry. So some of these effects are, are likely to be longer lasting in some areas than others. For example, we've seen at Lloyd's cash and card transactions return to and exceed their pre-pandemic levels, whereas checks declined steeply in the early stages of lockdown and their recovery, it seems, is either delayed or we've seen a very steep change, a very steep reduction in the use of checks overall. So it really is a, it really is a mixed story across uh, different payment types and different impacts for businesses. Okay. Can we hold the thought on you know, changing fees into Europe? Because I want to come back to that to that um, with you in a minute, Gavin, if that's okay. But um, Naresh, perhaps um, same question to you. What what do you what have you seen, and what what has ACT seen um, in terms of changes this year um, in terms of secular trends? Yeah. So I think clearly a lot of what Gavin has shared already. I think we're seeing we're hearing from our treasury community as well. I think part of what what I'm sort of mindful of is last year, a lot of it was around just getting things done. So for organizations that were seeing card activity and, and card not present activity being a small part of their business, it was clearly for many of them suddenly changing quite dramatically. But for a lot of them, they were either putting in a very sort of simple solution or just trying to scale what they had already, already and make it try and fit for purpose. And certainly talking to a lot of people at the beginning of this year, partly due to Brexit and some of these unexpected charges that Gavin's alluded to. But I also think there's a recognition that what they built last year wasn't actually better. It was just getting it done. And I think what I'm hearing from a number of folks is a need to sort of go back and look at how they are looking at future payment trends and actually trying to make sure their business is properly scaled rather than just can we accept payment. And part of what that what I'm hearing from that is that people are looking at exploring multiple merchant IDs. So when we look at Brexit, people are recognizing that now we're outside of the European Union. The charging structure is currently different, will probably stay different. And I know a couple of them are looking already at creating new merchant IDs and adding more, sadly, more complexity to their business now that we've left the European Union. And I think that. The other thing we're seeing is that when we talk about charges, and Gavin's made a point about charges, for the larger organisations, I think they see some of this new charging slipping in as being just an, you know, a cost of doing business with the European Union, along with you know more documentation, etc. But I'm sure Daniel will pick up on this, but my heart really goes out to the smaller businesses because they're the ones for whom an extra 50 or 100 pounds on a particular shipment of goods is actually quite a lot more of a margin than it is the likes of, you know, some of our members like Marks and Spencers and Diageo. So I'm going to talk a lot more long, longer on this, but I think those are sort of my observations around the changes. So Dan, perhaps over to you. Um, <laughs> these trends that happened through this last year, how, how did small businesses feel about them and um, what does it look like moving forward? It, it's, it's definitely been a difficult year for small businesses on, on a number of levels. If we just take Brexit to begin with, um, there's obviously been massively increased costs 
um, and just the cost of, of doing business. I mean, both uh, Naresh and Gavin sort of mentioned that businesses are now looking at more complex ways of setting up to try and avoid some costs. But complexity isn't a luxury that SMEs really have. Um, they don't have the time or the funds to look at perhaps setting up different merchant IDs in other countries to enable them to trade better. It's simply just a cost that they have to suck up and take. They, they don't have a choice. And when you look at where some of these costs are coming from, you do have to ask the question how justified some of these increases are. Um, it's, it's almost as if uh, some of these providers know that the SMEs are a bit of a captive market in a largely unregulated field. And perhaps some of them are making the, the best of a bad situation. Um, but hopefully we, we sort of see SMEs still willing to go ahead and trade with Europe and, and try and overcome these costs. But there will be many SMEs that are looking at, okay, how do we do this differently now? Um, it won't be merchant IDs, but it might be a, a slightly different way of, of doing business or it might not necessarily be Europe that they're trading with, but depending on what uh, free trade agreements or, or future agreements come down the track, um, maybe they'll look to other parts of the world going forward. Just looking at that, Dan, actually, I was looking at one of the, um, one of the stats and it was um, something like the, it was the hesitancy of small businesses versus their enterprise counterparts making international payments. 38% of larger organisations versus 10% of small businesses. How is, is this what we're just seeing as, as, a, as an effect of Brexit and it's short term and it will bounce back? Or is it more of a, a more of a secular trend to small businesses not wanting to trade internationally? So it, it, it's a difficult one. We, we definitely saw the same trend. Um, so this exists, it's definitely out there. But you've got a, a double combination of both Brexit and COVID at the same time. So if you cast your minds back to uh, December, um, we were in the midst of a, a second wave, but we were also about to um, formally leave the, the EU and, and go into this new uh, trading. Actually, no, we'd left the EU a few years back, but we were about to go into this new trading uh, agreement with the European Union as of January the 1st. With the lockdown itself, many businesses weren't trading or certainly not trading at full capacity. So the decision was made by many SMEs, especially those exporters, um, to uh, effectively take a long Christmas break. So instead of coming back at full capacity on January the 1st to the 5th, depending on, on how the days fall, um, it was decision, well, actually, if, if we stall that back, if we push back our plans for the year by a month or so, it gives us time to, A, hopefully, um, get out of this second wave and things begin to pick up again and we're in a slightly better place with the pandemic. But also any issues that do occur day one, new trading agreement, hopefully that they've been somewhat ironed out, um, whether or not that's in the ports or the the, uh, the authorities doing checking the paperwork. Hopefully those initial teething, is, teething in issues are somewhat resolved. Um, regardless of your opinion on whether or not that they, they eventually get got resolved, I, I think we're seeing SMEs beginning to pick up that trading agreement, uh, that trading arrangement with the EU now. Um, and, and work is now... Uh, not quite at the capacity that it was uh, pre-Brexit, um, but it's certainly definitely an improvement on where we were in January. Okay, thanks. I want to come back to you, Gavin, on the international payments. Um, I'd love to get your perspective following on from Dan, but I also would like to tease upon a point that you mentioned about the changing fees that are happening behind the scenes. Um, and my understanding was that some of those fees weren't supposed to change and that we weren't going to charge more from a UK perspective and we were supposed to have that reciprocity. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about um, your view and the bank's view of international payments and what's happened there. Yeah, so 
on the charges, Gareth, um, when we were part of the the, the EU, um, we, we benefited like any other member state from payments moving around that uh, European economic area. Um, now, as a, as a country outside of that area, um, our payments can be treated like payments coming from any other country outside of the EU. Um, and, th and there is an argument for um, why would payments coming from a UK citizen, for example, to a Spanish bank be treated any different to a payment from a US citizen going to a Spanish bank? Um, certainly the approach we've taken in the UK is to keep the arrangements that were in place pre-Brexit. We thought that was the right thing to do for our uh, consumer and business customers. It offered continuity um, and it meant that the arrangements for reaching those European markets uh, wouldn't be disrupted. What we have seen, and I emphasise it as only our experience, um, we, we have seen a small number of banks in Europe um, introduce additional charges or charges that weren't there before uh, for payments that are going into Europe from UK account holders, whether that be uh, personal customers or businesses. So we are seeing that at a relatively small scale uh, at the moment, but you know the, the, the watching brief um, is to make sure that that doesn't become more extensive because then as, as Naresh and Dan have said, um, businesses of different sizes will, will need to deal with that in, in their own way. Um, on payment volumes more broadly, um, I, I won't draw any conclusions over whether it's Brexit or it's COVID or it's anything else. But what I can say is that our total international or cross-border payments um, in the last six months have been consistently above pre-crisis levels. So at a net level, we are doing more cross-border payments now than we were before the pandemic hit. But within that mix, actually what we're seeing is fewer payments to Europe and more payments to uh, other parts of the world. So, you know, that, that's just uh, some, some facts from our, from our own payment experience. Having said that, you know, to, to lighten the mood somewhat, we, we've got some reasons for optimism. Um, and in some of our surveying that, that we do regularly, 59% um, of our customers are expecting to recover in less than a year um, and 28% expecting to, to take longer. So um, what, what we've seen and what we see in terms of recovery at the moment is is hopefully indicative of a of a medium term recovery. So it sounds like um, it sounds like really from both of you or from all of you that the business volume is picking back up, confidence is picking back up on that, um, but there are still some potential friction. Um, just before we move off this topic, and I, I will need to move us on in a second, but I do want to just finish up with you know some of this sounds like it's almost despite what government is doing as opposed to because of it. Um, I'd love to get very quick point, point of view, if you're prepared to share it on what should we be doing, whether it's with trade agreements or reciprocity agreements to try and help reduce some of this friction, or prevent it moving forward and to ensure that this recovery continues. Anybody brave enough to take that one? 
I'm quite happy to come in on that one if it helps. Um, first of all, it's all about opportunity. If you can knock down the barriers and if you can open the doors, it doesn't matter where in the world they're trading, they will find a way to trade. You just have to open up that opportunity for them to be able to access it. Um, obviously, when we were in the EU, it's quite an obvious and clear opportunity to go trade there. Um, but we need to make sure that we we bring down those barriers and enable SMEs to, I hate to use this phrase, but uh, explore global Britain um, and start exporting right the way around the world because that's the only option that they really have going forward. I think the only thing I'd add would be sometimes it's not until we lose something do we actually start to value it. And I think that as we as we see now with some of these, for example, payment charges, I think a bit like Daniel and Gavin, the market will innovate and will find ways around it. You know, if you think about how many fintechs there are all looking for little niches, uh, we look at some of the you know new open banking solutions. I'm pretty confident it won't require government, but actually the market will provide you know some really good uh, solutions. Interesting. Gavin, any any thoughts on that from your perspective? we move on? Uh, I think for all of our respective organisations, staying close to our clients or our, our members, in the case of the other guys, um, consulting with them, sharing best practice, sharing the benefit of, of our broad experience. Um, that that's what needs to happen in the short term, and, and I agree with Nick. It will find ways to, to to innovate through some of these challenges. Okay. Kevin, we lost you a little bit there um, on Zoom. I think there's a little bit of buffering, but we got. I think we got the general gist. So um, so thank you for that. I'm going to I'm going to move us on to another topic that came up um, across the whole of the barometer, and that's the. Um, that's the topic of fraud, which I guess is always ever present if you're in the payments world, um, but seemed to be particularly prevalent um, this year. Um, one of the things that jumped out, I think, to all of us um, who looked at the barometer and the, and the data from it was the was the difference in um, in impact. Um, just looking at the numbers here, so forty eight percent of larger businesses saw an increase in insider fraud and collusion versus only thirty four percent have seen that increase. So as we move towards this kind of hybrid models of home working, office working, distributed um, um, colleagues. How can businesses protect themselves from cyber attacks and insider fraud and collusion? And is that purely just the larger organisation or is it something that smaller businesses need to be on the watch for as well? Perhaps I can see you first, Naresh, on that. So certainly casting my mind back to sort of this time last year, um, probably back in terms of April and May, in fact, it was definitely a real concern. We spoke to our members. Um, around the fact that they had, they had large teams distributed now working at home um, and payment fraud was a key risk for them, especially, you know, we're always warned about sudden payment requirements needing to be made. Um, and I think what we what we definitely saw last year was a lot of folks focusing on, A, knowing that their entire model was everyone working from home by and large, and B, what sort of controls they needed to put in place. So a lot, a number of them were putting manual controls in place. I know one company where uh, the CFO signed anything over a thousand pounds because of their concern around fraud. And part of what I, I'm, as we move into the sort of, as you talk about this hybrid working model, 
where certainly from the ECT perspective, we'll have some people in today, some people in tomorrow. It's not always going to be so easy to understand where people physically are. And part of what I worry is that it's much easier to define a payment control environment if everyone's in the office. And it's, with some thought, relatively easy to create one when people are working from home. But when you've got people working in, in a whole range of different places and no real clarity of where people are, that I think is where we're going to see a lot more risk around fraud. One of the things that I, um, again, you know, I, I heard a couple of people doing last year is increasing the number of times they did internal fake spoof uh, phishing emails just to try and keep their staff um, alert to the risks involved. Uh, and I think it's those sort of tools which people need to think about. Not very expensive, um, a bit annoying. I mean, I'd, I'd hate to get payment requests all the time and have to keep thinking, is this a spoof or not? But I do think it's something we all have to learn to live with and we all need to find tools that are proportionate to the risks and the size of our organisations. So companies were doing this themselves, kind of their own version of vaccination, perhaps. Yeah, I, I think it's a good way of looking at it. Um, you know, you've got to, yeah, self-heal. Okay. Um, so, Dan, is there similar sort of fears in smaller businesses or a different different take on fraud and different vectors of risk? I, I think it's slightly different for small businesses, especially in the wake of the year that we've just had. A lot of them have changed the way that they accept payment. They've changed the way that they do business completely. Um, there's a surprising amount of small businesses that weren't online in any capacity whatsoever. Well, the last year has changed a lot of that. Um, sort of go with the vaccination analogy. The, the, uh, the bigger boys might be doing the, the whole um, IT security and sending out the fake emails. Um, SMEs are very much still walking around without a mask on. Um, and we need to make sure that they're ready and that they're up to speed when the time comes. Because the last year, yes, they've moved online. They've started taking payments in new digital ways, whether that's mobile phone payments, push to pay, all sorts of different initiatives. The problem is, is that they've spent the last year getting used to these and implementing them. And it's almost a matter of time before they start to be stung by various frauds and scamsters uh, coming down the line. So the, the question for us is, how many of these new ways of taking payment will stick with SMEs um, when we eventually get through to uh, opening up completely and getting back to whatever the new normal is? And will they be taking on any training to try and mitigate any risk of fraud or loss through these new payment systems? Um, because it, it, it's almost a numbers game in the sense that it, if you have thousands and thousands of SMEs for the first time exploring digital payments, you can guarantee that some of those are going to be hit by scams, by uh, fraudsters coming down the track. So it, it, it's almost a waiting game on that one. So Gavin, what's the, what's the bank's perspective on this? I mean, obviously you're, you're servicing all sizes of organisations and, and have a very broad view um, of, of what's happening. So what, what have you seen over the last year or, or that's caught your eye in the barometer? Yeah, I mean, I think similar to the other guys, um, sadly, with all the upheaval and all the changes, um, whilst we often focus on the, the positives of that and the opportunities to innovate, um, unfortunately, so do the bad guys too. And, and they see it as an opportunity and they see the uncertainty and the disruption as a way to penetrate processes and controls that um, they, they might not have got through in normal times. 
Um, I, I think, you know, b businesses of all sizes um, can do a few simple things to to protect themselves and Naresh and Dan have, have touched on some of them. But I really think testing key controls and testing the control environment is essential. Revisiting the configuration and purpose of payment authorization processes, um, independently verifying new payment instructions, make sure the antivirus software is you know, in place and up to date, um, use encryption wherever possible. And for goodness sake, when somebody tells you just to ignore what the confirmation of payee check says when your banking app does it, uh, mistrust that individual deeply. Um, those, those kind of things um, will help protect against whether it's insider um, or third-party um, scams and hacks that are going on outside. I can just pick up on the last point there about confirmation. Um, I think that leads us to kind of an interesting sort of fairly new vector that's appeared over the last year or so, and that's the um, APP, the authorised push payment and the fraud that comes with that. Um, confirmation pay is obviously one um, effort to, uh, to try and combat that. Is there more that governments or industry or, or perhaps even some of the social media and, and technology giants should be doing to, to help protect against some of that, some of those, um, the new fraud that comes with APP. And I, I would say, um, Gareth, that I, I think government's probably done enough. Um, I think that it's really down to uh, businesses to to actually work out how to deal with this. I, I think there is a danger with 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 over legislating, and I think um, I'm I'm not a big fan of checklists that say if you do these ten things, you are guaranteed not to have a bad thing go wrong happen um, and I think we all need to learn you know as, as Gavin has said and as we all know um, as quickly as as folks like you innovate and provide you know clever security and protection the bad actors are doing the same thing so it's this constant battle going on and the only thing that we know we need to do is to make sure our people truly understand for all the technology my understanding is most fraud occurs down to human intervention and that the more we, the more organizations move to straight through processing, the better. Uh, one of the things that we, we've seen over the last few years and be interested to see if it continues, are organizations moving towards central payment hubs. So rather than payment money in and money out being scattered across organizations, concentrating in fewer places, and admittedly this is only for larger organizations, but it is a way in which you concentrate the risk, but also sort of hopefully concentrate the understanding, the education and the protection as well. So I don't think it's a it's a role for the government. I do think it's down to businesses and I think it's down to organisations, you know, folks like yourself, events like today to really push and encourage and remind people of the dangers of fraud and how even if you survived yesterday, that's no guarantee you're going to survive tomorrow. So the summary then is that it's it's a this is a people thing, and I think you said it, Gavin. We can have confirmation of pay if you elect if you elect to ignore the warning, then the people people are the weakest weakest link in the chain, so to speak. So education and 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 controls seems to be the way to 
perhaps combat this ever um, and vigilance all the time, perhaps. Perhaps I can move us on. Um, we mentioned a few terms there, such as um, APP and COP, and we do love we love these terms in our industry um, and um, some acronyms and so on. But let's talk a little bit about regulations and initiatives. So perhaps somewhat worryingly, but perhaps not perhaps not surprisingly, given the backdrop, there's been a a consistent decline, the barometer has shown year on year, a decline in preparedness for some of the new payment regulations that are coming down, that are coming down the pike. 38% um, of smaller businesses are prepared to embrace open banking compared to 66% of enterprise, but that's still going down. So actually all the numbers are dropping in terms of level of preparedness. Why is this? Um, Gavin, as a, as, a, as a senior person at a bank, you're right in the middle of this. Why do you think, why is this preparedness dropping or lack of interest? I think it's a question of priorities for, for businesses. As the barometer has really eloquently pulled out, you know, the, the drivers are for change um, at the moment for most businesses are things in the short term, you know, preserving cash, keeping staff and customers safe, um, introducing different ways of working. And as the barometer said, you know, as I mentioned right at the top, Gareth, you know, one in two businesses have adopted a new payment type in 2020. But understandably, they've tended to go for tried and tested, uh, proven technologies like debit and credit card payments and, and mobile payments and maybe PayPal and direct debits. Um, some of the more emerging uh, regulations and new payment types that are, that are coming on, I think are just on the next horizon of focus for businesses. And, and I think that's you know, perfectly understandable um, given the year that, that we've just gone through. And what's, what's the small business perspective on that then? So if there's this, um, I think the term we've used before, this sort of brutal Darwinism of where they're going to spend their time, what, how, does that, how does a small business think about that? I, I, I think over the last year, SMEs have had to make some very difficult decisions. Um, th th this hasn't been a year which has allowed SMEs to experiment or future gaze or look at what would be nice to do for the business? Can can we look at this uh, technology that might give us a 0.2% increase here or there? This has been about survival. This has been about ensuring that there's a business to come back to next week, not in three years' time. Um, many SMEs have spent, especially the, the first stage of the lockdown, struggling to keep their heads above the water with uh, the, the costs, the debt building, um, and a lack of business coming through the door. So it's, it's not surprising that we hear that they haven't spent the last year looking forward to uh, the open banking and changing regulations, which are coming down the track in a few years' time. They've been more concerned about what's coming down the track in a few days' time. Um, interventions from the government have been incredibly helpful. Um, things like the furlough scheme, the grant system has, has helped businesses keep their heads above the water. And hopefully now as we're coming out into um, an easing of, of the restrictions of the lockdown. Hopefully businesses can begin to resolve that outstanding debt problem that they've got. Um, but it's still likely that they're going to be looking at things like open banking and the future regulations coming down the track. 
it, it's it's too easy to get caught up in the in the stats of of how many businesses have looked into open banking or, or accepted new payment methods. This year, I think, has been a, a, a human element story. Um, whether or not that's fraud or whether or not it's survival, it, it's been the individual decisions that people have made to keep their businesses afloat. And each and every one of those has been critical over the last year. There are very few businesses who have had the time, energy and the resources to be able to pontificate on uh, future regulations and what uh, the payment uh, systems might look like in a couple of years' time and, and start preparing themselves for that. They've very much been preparing for the next announcement, the next set of statistics that are coming down the road and the next set of restrictions. And Resh, I want to come to you, but I also want to pick up, I would ask you, Resh, if you could also give us some insight on something you picked out from the barometer. It's not really a new payment initiative, but it's relatively new, which is real-time payments or instant payments. And you mentioned that the, uh, the percentage of, of adoption and actually I think and Gavin I think can confirm this certainly we've seen in bottom line the volumes of real-time payments are increasing but the speed of adoption has dropped off so is there some is there something that's happening there that we should be thinking about yeah so I'm gonna I'm gonna nick first of all one of Daniel's words uh, pontification um, so I would definitely echo a lot of what uh, Daniel said about last year and I, I'm just recalling that going into 2020 uh, a lot of our members were forecasting a, you know, a recession, uh, so they weren't looking at new things. They were really looking at how they could survive. And then, obviously, we had the pandemic. And, and it, as we've all, as we're all aware, it was a year of survival. And again, picking on Daniel's point about people, a lot of people this year are fee- focusing on the human element. So, as we now go back to the offices, what does that mean to our operating models, to our teams? and mental health as we go back into this, you know, using public transport, for instance. So I think certainly for the Treasury community and a lot of the people I speak to in the payments arena, um, a lot of last year has been just getting things done. It's the practical element rather than, I'll use it again, the pontification. Uh, And I think that's part of why a lot of folks aren't really focused on open banking. And I I think part of it is around the label of open banking. I think there are changes going on in this space around it, but people aren't necessarily attributing the word open banking to it. I think there is definitely, as as you've said, Gareth, we've seen an increase in in overall activity, but actually that's just because volume activity has gone up. And I think part of it is that there's a lack of, you know, we we have for real-time payments, we still have this limit, which restricts a lot of um, organisations using higher value payment channels like faster payment rails. And I think that um, when, when we look at the sort of speed of adoption, part of it is um, the sort of so what. So at the moment, we know that payments work, whether you're using checks or backs or in some cases, faster payments, it sort of gets done what needs to get done. It's not broken. And I think part of what I I also this view around, it's a bit like non um NFC technology. So we we had the technology around for quite a while. Um, I never used it until I started seeing being used it on Transport for London's underground network. And when I saw people older than me using it confidently, it gave me some confidence, actually, maybe this is something I should be uh, trying out, putting my foot in the pond and seeing whether it would work, what the risks were. And I sort of think we're in the same place with open banking. 
there's still a lot of nervousness around the use of it and what is it. Um, but I do think that we are building up to a sort of crescendo. We will start to see a, a greater range of products, a greater ease of adoptability, more compelling stories. You know, one of the things that I, I've seen, uh, I've seen a few organizations um, in, in some, you know, and, and not all London-based, so fintechs up in sort of Liverpool area. I know one that's doing faster payments for salaries. So in order to help the gig economy, uh, to support uh, people on the just about managing economy, being able to be paid more quickly. Um, so I look at these innovations, and I think they're quite small in the overall scheme of things, not big, but for individuals and individual businesses, they are making a difference. And I think we'll just see more and more of that happen as time goes by. So effectively, the, the, the infrastructure, the legislation, the regulations are there. It's over to industry and technology providers like us to, to get on with it now, find the use cases, innovate around it, and bring it to life. Um, exactly. And it also sounds like as we recover um, from this last year that uh, businesses are starting to feel more confident and look forward. Um, so perhaps the time is right to start to, start to think about that. Um, well, with yeah. that, we'll move on to our final question you guys and i'm going to ask you to dig out your crystal balls um and actually to um to think about what are the big predictions and opportunities where are we headed you know last year was well just a an awful year in a lot of ways but uh, also somewhat of a, a seminal year in terms of a break um lots of changes lots of trend acceleration what do you see for the next two to three years for the payments industry so gavin i'll, I'll come to you first on that my, I'm not sure how bold they are, um, but my predictions, nonetheless, uh, I think pretty quickly payments will return to their long-term trend lines. So when we look back, we'll see a step change in 2020 and 2021, uh, but the long-term shape of those trends, I think, will revert to, to their pre-crisis shape. And I believe that because the main drivers behind those trends haven't changed. We've got regulation enabling more competition and innovation. We've got better technology enabling new payment experiences. Um, and we've got people in society demanding more self-service, more convenience, more digital and more seamless payment journeys. Um, and these are all good things that actually make the UK a global leader in payments. So I think as long as those fundamentals are in place, the, the trends that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, I think will return. In the medium term, um, as I say, I predict a return to normality, albeit the way that we make payments will benefit from investment and innovation in things like wearables and open banking and, and some of the other things that, that we've talked about. I agree with Naresh, that actually I think the potential is there bubbling under the surface. It's just waiting to be unlocked. And then in the long term, um, I think as the UK recovers from the pandemic and begins to prosper in the post-pandemic, post-Brexit era, um, as a payments industry, we're going to need to help businesses to reach the markets that they want to trade in. As Dan said earlier, businesses will find a way so I think we'll have significant focus in making cross-border payments as fast, easy and transparent as domestic payments are today. 
um, and government and industry bodies will have a key role to play in enabling and facilitating that change. But actually, the main driver, as, as we've said throughout this conversation, the main driver is going to be the market and our ability to deliver for our clients, customers or, or members. Thanks, Kevin. Um, Dan, what do, you, what do you see um, from small businesses over the next couple of years? Well, from our own uh, small business index, we've seen that small business confidence is returning. Um, it, it's coming up from a very, very low, low baseline that has to be added. Um, but it, it's it's fragile, nonetheless. Um, there's a lot of optimism there, but, but it, it's going to be easily shattered. And depending on what happens with new variants, um, I don't think small businesses can afford to go into another lockdown. I don't think there can be a, a rolling back. Uh, of the the easing that we've seen because I think it would absolutely destroy business confidence going forward um, and probably scupper plans for the entire sort of uh, 2022, possibly into 2023 sort of financial years going forward. Um, I I think in terms of small businesses at the moment, a lot of them will be fixated on the announcement in a a week or two's time. Um, And I think for a lot of small businesses, confidence is key and so is clarity. Um, if there's to be delays to, to restrictions coming forward, I, I think we're better off getting that message out sooner rather than later. We don't want people putting orders in. We don't want people making plans for the 21st, only to find out that it's not going to happen. Outside of that, in a in a world where restrictions don't exist, or at least they're, they're minimal, um, I, I think a lot of small businesses will be looking to um, pay back some of the debt that they probably built up over last year, and those that have been fortunate enough to survive the last year without taking on huge amounts of debt um, will probably be looking at how they can kick their business on. This year has been a fight for survival, but those that have survived have probably got a bit more of an optimistic outlook for the future mm-hmm. and probably have that extra drive and that little bit more impetus to go forward and really kick on in the next couple of years. But the overarching message there is that this is fragile. This could shatter very, very easily. And the worst thing we can do is, is give business confusing messages and we don't give them enough clarity on timescales. Just to follow up on that, then, if I can, I, some of the small businesses who survived and maybe even in some instances thrived are the ones that adapted very quickly, moved to digital, moved to new payment types, got away from taking cash, put on direct debit subscriptions, all various different innovations. How much of that do you think will persist as we return to hopefully normality? Um, hopefully quite a lot. So if, if you look at the high street, for example, it, it, it's always been characterised as one of these um, areas of, of the UK economy that's constantly in decline because people prefer to shop online and, and, and get their goods ordered uh, next day um, by a, a particular type of forest near Brazil, um, rather than actually go out to their local high street and, and spend store. Now, a lot of these Shops, a lot of these types of businesses have innovated over the last years. They've gone online, they've done digital payments, they, they've done um, the whole delivery system mm-hmm. uh, surrounding that. There is a big question over whether or not they stick with these payments and these new ways of working in the future or whether or not actually it's easy to slip back into old habits. Because what we often find with businesses is that they're idea rich, but time and energy poor, i.e. it's normally one person running the show. Um to put it bluntly, and it's fine for that one person to do the online payments now while the, the, the physical store, the old ways of working are possible. But when you have the option to do both, that one person then has to make a decision that they, they do one, they do the other, they try and do both and probably don't do either quite uh, well enough. 
or they look at expanding. They look at taking someone on to fulfill uh, some of the gaps now that have been built up in their business. And, and then that's how you will sort of begin to get that growth. I hope is, is that it, it's the latter, that people learn the lessons over the last years and adapt with it instead of falling back on the old ways of working. But in all honesty, we're not going to know that until we are six months in at least uh, into whatever the new normal looks like. Okay, so a watching brief there. Thank you. And Naresh, over to you for your predictions for the next uh, couple of three years. Just um, following on from some of what Daniel said, and appreciate that a lot of our members are, as treasurers, the larger enterprises in the UK, in Europe, and the US. But I think at a personal level, um, I think what I saw from last year was a lot more customization at a B2C level. So the experience for me, how was it around buying things, how was it around refunding? How quickly I got my refunds? All those sort of things. And I think the, the challenge for businesses is that consumers are now, having seen that, will not want to go back to um, the refund will come in seven to 10 working days and all these sort of things. I think the demands of consumers will have changed and will not go back. And I think that's going to make it quite, I think it's going to be an added challenge for a lot of Daniel's members who are going to maybe have to spend double to have, you know, both an online and a physical presence and how do we manage all that process? I think at a medium term, I think part of what we'll see is much more, many more organizations looking at building payment strategies and looking at what, not just what has happened uh, and adopting existing technology, but also what is coming down the line. So when we look at things like request to pay and the rollout of confirmation pay to larger enterprises, I think organizations will start to see that they need a strategy for how to adopt it, not because it's just purely around payments, but it touches other parts of the business around stock, around CRMs, a whole load of other systems that need to be, um, you know, to move at the same pace as the sort of payment technology is moving. So I think for a lot of organizations, we will start to see more coalescing of um, payment factories, teams that actually manage uh, card payments, whether in the UK or scattered across the globe, and a greater concentration towards centralized payment hubs. I'm going to be slightly controversial and say my long-term prediction is no payments. And by that, I don't mean no bottom line. Because as we have at the moment, you know, when, when a lot of our, my members um, make payments, they use bottom line, they have no idea genuinely who's actually providing the payment rails and who's providing the technology and the plumbing. They just expect the money to move. And I'm reminded of, of when I, before lockdown, I used to use Uber. My main concern with Uber was, is it here? How much is it going to cost? And uh, how long is the journey? The payment transaction itself, I was completely indifferent to because it's already been loaded somehow, somewhere, hopefully in some sort of secure environment. So my, my sort of long-term view of payments is that we will not be having these conversations about payments, not because folks like you have gone, but because the payments will be delivering enhanced data-rich information they will be delivering goods and services from one person to another. And the payment will be intrinsically wrapped into that service and goods that are being delivered itself, rather than at the moment where it's we're still in the, here are the goods and the check is in the post. 
Yeah, I think as, uh, it was an interesting um, it was an interesting article. Uh, I think it was the largest seed funding in Europe this year. There's a company called Sunday that's setting up um, effectively, so you don't ever have to ask for your check or your bill in a restaurant. You just pay from pay from an app. So that, that's your point of that. Payment still happens, but it sort of disappears into the, the process, whether it's a consumer process or a business process. So that's um, that's very interesting, and there's lots of as you say examples of that. Um, so we're going to move to Q&A now. Um, we do have a couple, but um, for any of the attendees, um, please feel free to drop any questions real time into the Q&A channel and I'll, I'll pick them up um, and, and ask our panellists. Um, but we've got a couple um, to, that we already have in that we'll, we'll, I'll start us with. Um, one that's an interesting question, but perhaps not a surprise, um, is the question came and said, I've noticed that digital currencies aren't included in the report. But I'm keen to know, with all the chatter around um, CBDCs, what the future is for f- digital currencies as a payment type. Um, so kind of a controversial one off the bat. Um, so, well, let's start with you, Gavin. Um, what, what's, uh, what's, your, what's your view on, uh, on digital currencies as, as payment types? So I, I would actually say that digital currencies um, or, or, or are closely related family member that digital currencies are in the the barometer this year, and that is blockchain and distributed ledger technology. But actually, in previous years, having featured in the sort of middle of the list of priorities for business, it has now slipped uh, down to, to the lowest significance for businesses. And I tend to think about um, digital currencies in the same way at least in the short term, Gareth. You know, I think as we've had the discussion today, you know, businesses are more concerned about the currencies of sterling, euro, dollar, and others that have been around for uh, a few centuries. Um, and I don't think the the focus has shifted, certainly as a payment type, onto, onto digital currencies in, in any meaningful way yet. I think there's a lot of um, interest in them as a as an investment or as an asset class um, of their own, um, but not really as a, as a payment instrument. I, I think that will come. You know, I think um, as we move forward, they will they will naturally rise up uh, and they'll increase in prominence. Um, but I, you know, as a as a big theme of today's conversation. Uh, I, I just think with everything else that businesses have been through over the last two or three years and everything that they've been through and are still going through right now with the pandemic and then hopefully the recovery that's to come, um, I, I just don't think that a, I don't think that a focus for, for British businesses just now. Dan, would that, would that be reflective of, um, of your membership as well? I, I mean, the, the, there's probably a few small businesses that are out there accepting all sorts of cryptocurrencies, but it, it, it's definitely few and far between. Um, most SMEs this year have been focused on the immediate uh, cash injections that they can get uh, in sterling euros or, or sort of US dollar or wherever it is in the world that they're looking to trade. Um, the, there's very few businesses out there seriously looking at these uh, cryptocurrencies going forward. Um, doesn't mean to say that it won't happen. Uh, there's obviously a long, long way to go, and and, and depending on how secure they are and, and what the adoption rate is like among consumers, as well as those businesses accepting it, it's a possibility. But right now, can we sit in the next two to three years? Probably not. 
Muresh, what about treasurers? I'll have to ask you for a quick answer on that because we're running up against time. Well, other than the uh, treasurer for Tesla, who clearly spent a lot of the money um, <laughs> buying into digital currencies and Bitcoin, um, I think a lot of them are waiting and watching on the sidelines of where this story goes, especially as a digital asset. Um, one of the things that I'm encouraging a lot of our treasury community to do is to do research to understand what these digital currencies genuinely are, um, whether it's a central bank digital currency or it's a distributed ledger technology. Because I think there are still, especially people my age, there's a lot of myths and a lot of history. It's easy to hack. Can I lose them? There are all these sort of parts of the story. And so part of what I'm saying to a lot of treasury folk is understand and learn what is the current state of, I think I read there are over 10,000 cryptocurrencies out there. At the moment, that's a very crowded marketplace and it will not continue uh, so varied and so, so large. Understand what it is, understand the so what, what is the point, what is the benefit to my business and go to the board and say, this is the current analysis because I don't think you can ignore it but again, I don't, and I think as risk managers and as payment specialists, we should be able to articulate what is the current state and what does it mean for my business. But as to do I see a lot of them rushing in tomorrow to actually start using it, um, I'm not that brave a person to say my members are doing that. Okay. Well, um, we're actually coming up against time. So if you put a question in and we didn't get to it, we will answer you offline. Um, I'd like to say thank you so much to our, to our panellists. So, um, fascinating conversation with you all i um, always enjoy talking with you um, thank you everybody for joining today's discussion as a reminder the report is under embargo until wednesday 9th of june at 9am and we'd be happy to connect you to any of the panelists i know they'd be happy to discuss any of the themes further and if you're interested in doing so please reach out with any follow-up questions you may have um, and with that i'll say bid you all good morning thank you ever so much for joining and um, stay well and stay safe thank you very much Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.